0: Welcome to On the Cast, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bro, and I have the privilege of working on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Early this month, there was major national security news from Sweden, where the government has decided to increase defense spending by 40%. Now, the budget, which is a government proposal, but one that is supported by other parties as well, is being labelled in various superlative terms as, quote, unquote" the biggest defence hike since the end of the Cold War, and so forth. And the proposal is quite generous. It includes 50% more personnel for the army, new vessels for the navy, new weapon systems for the air force, and new regiments. And crucially, from my perspective spending on civil defence, which is about keeping civil society running from roads to energy, that spending is being doubled. And that is a good reminder about the fact that without societal resilience, military excellence is useless. Now I'm thrilled to be able to discuss what this means and what exactly countries should invest in to keep themselves safe with Dr. Paul Johnson, who is the chairman of the Swedish Parliament's Defence Committee. Now, Paul has an international educational career that I think makes most of us envious. He has a bachelor's degree from Georgetown, a master's degree from the College of Europe in Bruges, and a PhD in war studies from King's College in London. And so who better to discuss these issues with than Paul, who is uh, an MP for the center-right moderate party in Sweden? I should point out that while this is a government proposal, Sweden conducts defense strategy in an all-parliamentary manner, meaning that the government has taken the wishes of parliament into account. And as a result, this proposal has wide support. So, Paul, can I ask how significant is the new budget really?
1: Thank you, Elisabeth, for for those kind words of introduction as well. Great to be with you and to follow you, Um, even though now you're overseas and no no longer in, in Europe. Well, it is a significant increase of both our defense expenditures and our defense capabilities. As you said, it's about 40%. Yet, we should keep it in perspective that today Sweden is only investing about 1% of its GDP on defense, which is actually among the lowest, if not the lowest, in whole Northern Europe. So we do have a lot of catching up to do. That's what we're doing right now. If I would say the driver for all of this, because As I said, we we are investing quite a lot in the next four, four or five years on defense. There is, of course, developments in Russia, and we are seriously concerned with what's happening in eastern Ukraine and also the illegal annexation of Crimea. We noticed that Russia has a low threshold for the use of military force. We noticed that, of course, it has doubled its defense expenditures, and it has a rather aggressive exercise pattern in the Baltic Sea. So those are some of the drivers why we're actually, to my mind, getting serious about defense and investing quite a lot of money in the next five to 10 years. I also want to point out that this is actually a long-term endeavor that we are embarking on when we are building up our armed forces again. It goes rather quickly to downsize them, but it takes time until you get the personnel, the equipment, the new military garrison in place to actually build a strong military capability.
0: And Paul, you said an exercise pattern in the Baltic Sea that's quite aggressive. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, we we see that Russia exercises much more frequently than it did before. We see that it engages into much more advanced exercises, actually doing joint exercises. We also see that it has a rather aggressive behavior toward our vessels and other other native vessels. And it, this is, of course, a reminder for us that we, we need to keep our guard up. And I think it's the unintended consequences of Russia's, to my mind, the rather irresponsible behavior in the Baltic Sea is that we it brings an awareness to us that we need to build up our defense capabilities again. But it's quite clear that we see what we call a new normality in in the Baltic Sea. And in all fairness, as you also said, it's it's not just Russian vessels on the Baltic Sea, but there's also an increased NATO presence, which we strongly welcome in in this region.
0: So here's a question I think parliamentarians in many countries, and indeed uh, governments in many countries, think about what sort of capability should you actually invest in sort of putting more money towards defense? That's one thing. But what should you actually buy for that money? And I think one issue in particular that that must be keeping you up at night is: what if military forms of aggression are not the main threat to Sweden today? What if it's gray zone aggression?
1: Well, I mean, this is an issue which I grapple with a lot, actually, and, and spend a lot of time on thinking about, and also. It's a challenge being a small state and then you only have the capability to withhold an armed attack for a limited amount of time. And then after that, you need some kind of support by another stronger power, of course, which is a challenge for Sweden, since we don't have formal defense arrangements with other states, since we have a, we maintain the policy of military non-alignment. But I, I think you're on to something as well that we're exposed to right now. And what we see is multi multidimensional threat features. Quite obviously, what I talked about before about the kinetic stuff, about Russia being much more visible in the Baltic Sea, and and of course that the fact that it uses a low threshold to use military force. That's a reality which forces us to invest into our armed forces. At the same time, we see that Russia also engages in this kind of gray zone between the peace and war. We see disinformation attacks, we see cyber attacks, and we see a lot of intelligence activities on our territory and to solve that kind of challenges you can't buy your way out with military equipment you also need much more cooperation between your security services and your intelligence services and you need to look over your laws and regulations so we have to have two thoughts in our mind at the same time, as the threat for an armed attack against Sweden cannot be excluded. At the same time, we're also challenged with all of these kind of race zones and hybrid threats. So it's a big challenge. And of course, as a defense planner, you have to balance means and ends and find the right, right mixture to increase your security.
0: That is an expression that I actually now start using. You have, you have to have two thoughts in your head at the same time, because it really is a situation where... Yes, there is an increased military threat, but there are also other threats that are increasing. And if you can't, keep your attention on both at the same time, (laughs) you can be sure that you'll be hit in the area that you're not focusing on. And and I think this is really the the challenge that you just articulated as well for Sweden, the challenge of a relatively small country that's non-aligned. We should point out that Sweden is no longer neutral. It's often referred to as neutral. Sweden is not neutral as a member of the EU. It's no longer neutral because it's a member of the EU, but it is militarily non-aligned. And so as, as a result, it has to think even more about what sort of capabilities and, and objectives it has when it comes to the, to the armed forces. Can you tell us, Paul, what you think these new investments will achieve for the Swedish armed forces?
1: Well, yeah, I think it will increase a higher level of security. I think they're absolutely necessary. I mean, on the military side, we have been investing in things like Patriot missiles. We're doing a live live upgrade on our Corvettes. We're investing into new submarines. We're getting long-range cruise missiles for our Air Force. We're also trying to get four army big gates into place. So we are, there's a significant investment into the armed forces. At the same time, we're also investing into our cyber capabilities. And I think those are crucial as well, which means that we invest into increasing the capabilities of the Swedish Signal Intelligence Agency. In order to identify different threats in the cyber arena, we are investing into a cyber operations center. We're looking, of course, at the British Cyber Operations Center there, but also the equivalent centers are available in Norway and Denmark. And we are also investing, as you alluded to before, also quite a lot into civil defense. And this is something we used to do quite well back in the old days of the Cold War, we used to have a very comprehensive civil defense project. And that means that you have kind of, you put like a helm around, your securing your society, you invest into everything. It could be public safety, it could be energy, it could be you're investing in the resilience into your energy grid, it could be investing into transportation, food supply in case of war and so forth. So that is a rather comprehensive measure that we take also on the civil defense side. And I think it's quite important for us that uh, the civil defense side and the military actually goes hand in hand. Because today, in case we we exposed to an armed attack, our armed forces are very dependent on the when we fight on our own territory, as we Swiss doing in that case, is that we also uh, have the support for the Swiss armed forces by, by the civil society, which is important. One more thing I think which is important, which is kind of connected to civil defense is that we're actually investing into a kind of like a US ID or a US or Swedish information agency for psychological defense. Uh, We have been quite exposed to disinformation attacks and it's important for us to be able to identify those disinformation attacks and also to attribute where they're coming to. We're actually putting up a government agency for that.
0: Which is one of very few such such outfits anywhere. Now, Paul, I wanted to bring up something rather different, but today very related, which is investments in Sweden and specifically takeovers of Swedish companies by foreign companies. Now, in the globalized world, mergers and acquisitions are, are a very good thing, and that's how globalization works, and everybody benefits. But what we've seen in recent years is an increase in the number of acquisitions of companies in Europe and beyond by Chinese companies and specifically cutting edge technology companies with technology, with mm. expertise that China needs. They are then brought up and are essentially lost to their home countries <laughs> and they are China's gain and China's gain as part of Made in China 2025, which is a Chinese plan for global economic superpower status. So, while investments, I think, we all agree are a very good thing, there is this national security element and in specific to the Chinese investments and takeovers of of companies. And this is a very tricky area, but lots of countries are beginning to think about whether they should have more government scrutiny of foreign investments. And you have been playing a key role in Working on a provisional legislation in Sweden that would allow the government to scrutinize takeoffs of strategic Swedish firms by non EU companies. So, can you tell us a little bit about that legislation?
1: Sure. Just as a way of background, of course, Sweden is an open and ardent and free trader. Our whole economy is based on export. We also have a rather vibrant R&D community within Sweden. We tend to score very well on innovation and so forth. I should also say that we've been one of the biggest recipients of Chinese foreign direct investment in, into our country. And, and on balance, there's been good things and bad things on it. The the killer's heel or the weakness of the Swedish system is that we used to have a rather rigorous regulations um, up until 1993 on how you could control foreign direct investments. After that, we abolished everything and we went happy-go-lucky. And we only saw the benefits of these Chinese investments. Now, I think you can also see some of the unintended consequences of that. What we learned from the financial crisis in 2008 was that China was very active in investing and also procuring technologies and trying to make itself independent of certain technologies and to a certain degree there was a hostile takeover. There's also been one ardent example in Sweden where a company that couldn't export its commodities to China due to export regulation, then a Chinese company went in and bought it. Obviously, this is unsustainable, and we envisioned this risk for a serious economic recession due to the COVID-19 situation. And therefore, we took an initiative in the Swedish parliament that we need some kind of legislation in place in order to secure that those companies that are engaged into matters that are a matter of national security, that they can be procured or, or bought up by by chinese or other foreign investors if it be to the detriment to swedish national security and we took an initial legislation that's going to be adopted later on in this fall after that we're going to have a more comprehensive legislation in place by 2022 let me also say that the eu commission actually has done some good job on this actually in bringing awareness among European countries, especially those European countries who had no legislation in place. And then about half of the members of the EU actually didn't have this kind of legislation into place. So we also appointed our export control agency. It's called ISP. That is actually a point of contact vis-a-vis the EU, because, of course, you want to have you want to exchange information with other European countries on, on what you, what deliberations and decisions you do in this, this matter. If I just could dwell a little bit more on on this 180-degree turnaround that we have done on the China debate in Sweden, I think that has been very apparent during the last years.
0: If I could just interrupt and and, and say that in the new Pew Research Center survey on on attitudes towards China, attitudes in, in every European country are changing for the negative when it comes to China. A majority, virtually everywhere now views China with suspicion or views it negatively. But in Sweden, the shift has been radical. As you said, Paul, Sweden used to be very obviously an ardent free trader and, and have used to have very positive attitudes towards China. That has shifted radically in just the past couple of years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think there have been some incidences as well that which actually have uh, instigated this quite vividly. For example, we have a Swedish citizen called Vyomintai who was, was actually apprehended in Thailand and brought to, to China. And this is a very difficult bilateral issue that we have with, with the Chinese that we're actually discontent. This not being let released. We also have a rather vocal Chinese ambassador here in town who makes some um, to my mind, rather aggressive statements. In general, we, we of course, have been seeing a deterioration of human rights in China. And China has been throwing its weight around also in Europe. And this brings concern to the Swedish public. And it's been a driver for for this change of mind. And I think what followed from that was also that we adopted a new China strategy in the Swedish parliament last year. I'm glad to say it was consensus on both sides of the aisles. And, And we have the whole parliament stood behind it. And it's quite outspoken into some of the concerns we have about China, including its cyber espionage and as well as intelligence activities and so forth. So, yes, indeed, there's been a change of mind in Sweden about China. I sometimes have issues with the ways and means of the Trump administration. but I think that they've done a good job in bringing awareness also among friends and islands of some of the unintended consequences of the rise of China and and uh, some of the unfair trade practices and so forth, which has also shaped our minds.
0: So this is really the current national security debate in a nutshell in Sweden, which used to be an ardent the free, free trader, and still is an ardent free trader, is now seeing itself having to pass legislation to scrutinize takeovers of Swedish companies simply because as a result of Chinese abuse of the hospitality, I guess one could say, and also it's finding itself a target of Chinese verbal aggression quite frequently, which may not matter to Chinese decision makers, but the result is that the Swedish public has turned against China in, in in a very big way. And again, while it doesn't matter to Chinese decision makers, it does matter to Swedish decision makers, who will obviously who are accountable to the public and, and will take decisions accordingly. So, a, a very tricky situation for an open and free trading country to be in. But we'll be watching the, that legislation closely because it's one of many such initiatives coming out of European countries.
1: If I just could say one thing, yes, then that is, of course, that we still want to trade with China. It's important in this regard. And I also want to add that we have a good people-to-people relationship Our concern is, of course, with the Chinese Communist Party and authoritarian elements of the Communist Party. So I just want to make that distinction, which I think is is important as well.
0: It is a really important distinction. Paul, if I may just come back to one aspect you mentioned previously, which is the armed forces. and I know you are the proud father of a teenage girl who will be assessed for military service next summer when she finishes secondary school. And along with everybody else in her year group, she will be assessed for suitability to do military service. And we should remember that out of a very large number of kids born every year in Sweden the year they turn 19, they are now assessed for military service. And if they are one of the best and the brightest, they are accepted. Currently around 4,000 are accepted. That figure will increase a bit, but it's still about as difficult to be to get into the Swedish Armed Forces military service as it is to get into Harvard. So Paul, would you like
1: her to serve? And does she want to serve? If you ask me, she wants to serve. It's just that she doesn't know it yet. She hasn't <laughs> seen the great benefits of it. And um, I think she's a little Bit ambiguous about it, but she was very honored and glad that she was taken out to do the draft. And then they test And about one third of the persons who actually do the draft and they, they check their length and high intelligence, their physical conditions, and so forth are actually selected to do the military service. We also say that doing the military service is actually a duty, but it's not a right. So, what's happened right now when we have about 100, 110,000 youth every year who is the body, about 4,000 are selected. So the people who actually get selected are highly motivated and it, they tend to also do well later on in life. I always say to my daughter that she never listens, that it will build, build, build character and that she will enjoy it. But as a system for selecting people to go into the armed forces, the military service is, is great because people who otherwise might not have selected that choice for the career are ex- exposed to the military life. They might have become, ended up doctors or engineers or lawyers, but they choose a military career. And being able to do the draft and select people to do the military service, I think it's a very good way of assuring personnel for our armed forces, which are, of course, our most important component of the Swedish armed forces. So, yes she's very interested into it at least, and um, we'll see how this ends up.
0: And one can't emphasize enough the point that you just made, that selective national service is a fantastic asset and system for the country, but for the individuals themselves as well. The armed forces get to select the best and the brightest, and obviously they only need to select those who are motivated because there are so many, and there are many more wanting to do national service than there are places. And on top of that, it gives a very large number of young people an insight into what it's like to serve in the armed forces. And they may decide to to do that for a living and, and turn that into a career. Whereas most of us, how would we know that we want to serve in the armed forces? We Most of us never interact with any officers or soldiers. How would we know that, that that's a career we want to pursue? So lots of subjects there, Paul, ranging from defense investment to Chinese investment in cutting-edge companies and how to make sure that doesn't harm Sweden or, or other countries. So tweet me at Elizabeth Broad to comment. And of course, please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify as well. Thank you very much, Paul. And thanks to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.